Welcome to Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. With the global coronavirus pandemic extending indefinitely, it is unlikely that we will ever return to the workplace as we once knew it. Informed by hundreds of conversations with clients across a host of industries, Drew Susco, client leader, architect, and frequent contributor on Trends and Tensions, joins myself, Brian Trainer, to offer five premises for the future of work. Welcome, Drew. How are you today? Great, Brian. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm okay. So we're here to talk about an article that you wrote specifically titled The Five Futures. Before we get to what they are, where did it originate? Yeah. So if we went the Wayback Machine together, Brian, I believe yeah. you and I had a conversation in maybe mid-March, right around the time when the coronavirus pandemic was bearing down on all of us. And there was a lot of uncertainty in the air. And I think that first week, actually, you, me, and Dominic Iacobucci, who also is a pretty frequent contributor, I had a conversation around you know, what might become I think if we went back in time and evaluated ourselves, we were somewhat ill-informed because we didn't really know what was going to happen. And quite frankly, I don't think anyone did. That's called so, science. <laughs> that's called science. Exactly. If we've learned something through this process, right, that none of us are qualified medical professionals or scientists. Or, Very uh, true. Very true. But anyway, during that period of time, you know, April and May of 2020, as opposed to doing what a lot of folks were doing, which was you know, throwing out some conjectures and trying to position and trying to say, hey, we've got it solved already. We instead paused and asked some questions. So what we ended up doing was we ended up pulling together two virtual roundtables. Each roundtable was attended by something like 60 to 70 corporate real estate professionals from a wide variety of, of different industries. And those roundtables are really meant to stimulate conversation around you know, what might become of, of the workplace after, quite frankly, we got through this period of time. So the first roundtable really focused on business continuity and around the shifting focus on corporate real estate. But the second one, we really dug in a little bit deeper and started to explore, well, what might be possible? What are, what are we learning so far? And how might those insights shape the way that we consider the role of corporate real estate, workplace, um, the yeah. way we work in the future? So at the end of that period of time, we ended up writing an article for Work Design Magazine, which is called The Five Futures. So that article was came out in probably May of, of 2020. So now we're sitting in late July <laughs> Um, and our, you know, and our thinking has evolved even further. I think if we were being honest with ourselves, sitting there in May, we probably thought we would have returned to some version of the workplace at this point in time. The return is, is taking a different shape than I think the majority of us thought it would. I think what's maybe most fascinating is, you know, the longer this period of extended uncertainty lingers, one thing is becoming pretty clear: the fabric of the American workplace has forever been altered, honestly, and. There is a real opportunity to imagine what the role of the workplace will be going forward, especially as a significant number of Americans, millions of Americans, you know, have been displaced. And the you know, vast majority of Americans who are still working and still producing and still being productive are learning all sorts of new tools and new behaviors and new ways of working that they will bring back to the workplace in some way, shape or form. Sure. So that's helpful to know the origins of it, because I think we learned something from the first roundtable to create scenarios to talk about at the second roundtable, which refined the ideas for the five future, which are an ever evolving you know, idea set. So let's get to what they are. What are the five futures? Can you run through those for us? Yeah. So at a high level, they even titles in the article. So I'm going to use those titles to refer to them. The first was 
called past his prologue or is called past his prologue, which essentially entails a return to isolated offices as opposed to more open workplace environments. The second we called sanitation and safety, which really reflected the sentiment of the time. How do we get people back to the workplace in a safe and sustainable way? How do we take precautions and manage through uncertainty and risk and things of that, that nature? So the first is past this prologue. The second we called sanitation and safety. Um, both of those were a little regressive, to be honest with you, in terms of their thinking. And then the next three were a little bit more progressive. The third we called no seat, no problem. <laughs> so no seat, no problem um, really explored a shift in the way that space is allocated. The fourth we call catch the culture and catch the culture reimagines the role of workplace entirely. We're beginning to really rethink the way that we allocate and maintain corporate real estate. And the last is probably the most progressive called that one remote run rampant, which imagines a future where a significant portion of the workforce never returns to the workplace in a substantial way. So the five are the fastest prologue, sanitation and safety, no seat, no problem, catch the culture and remote run rampant. And as I mentioned, they exist on a spectrum from progressive mm. to progressive. Sure. So. Yeah. <laughs> Sanitation and safety almost seems like a prerequisite of any of the future scenarios, right? So it's not its own scenario anymore, or would you disagree? I think sanitation and safety is going to have lingering effects or knock-on effects for the foreseeable future. Just I'll give you an example. There has been a run on plexiglass over the course of the last six months. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so there are plexiglass dividers up, obviously, in all of retail outlets and places that you interact with folks. But they're not finding their way into restaurants, and now they're finding their way into the workplace as well. You know, I think long term, hopefully, we find a vaccine and we find a way to, you know, to beat the virus. We're going to find <laughs> alongside that a whole heap of unused plexiglass. So, <laughs> you know, there will be lingering effects to sanitation and safety. Uh, certainly for projects that are designed during this period of time, we're going to see more consideration given for places where people gather together in significant numbers, specifically probably vertical circulation. So things like elevators, things like lobbies, places where you have lots of people in kind of dense environments where traffic is high. The decisions that we make with respect to those spaces will linger for a long time, certainly. But Sanitation and safety really explores, back to the point of being regressive, what has happened in the, in the workplace oh, okay. the last three months. So the focus on this six-foot solution, this six-foot radius where people are evenly spaced out with shields, et cetera, that really is kind of a short-term thinking because the reality is existing in those environments for a prolonged period of time is probably not the solution. They take up a you know, significant amount of real estate, or you uh, have to adopt a, an A-B strategy where, you know, half the workforce comes in one day, half the workforce comes in the other day, or alternating weeks or alternating two-week periods of time. And so it's really a middle ground solution to keep the workplace somewhat operational or continue to use it as a tool. But quite frankly, it doesn't resolve the issue. It just addresses the fact that coronavirus is here. There are organizations that are you know, desiring to continue operations, which also brings up the point that, quite frankly, all of these are set against the backdrop of lots of different organizations. So none of these is, um, I'd say, a holistic solution. I imagine that uh, the majority of organizations would take components of these and make sense of them for themselves. And like an a la carte menu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or some sort of hybrid solution, right? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are certain job functions where you know, being in the office is necessitated by law or um, by requirements to use, say, tools and technology that aren't readily available at home. Yeah, where... we do have clients that have returned already, 
but at a significant ratio. We actually have one that we've worked with before they're 100% since March. So yeah. they've already come back to workplace, but they've had to create mostly that sanitation and safety protocol yeah. you know, to exist going forward. But they already had, everybody had their own space. Yeah. So their spaces were big enough to where they could maintain the distance. And then they created the protocols of you wear your mask if you get up and move away from your space, yeah. you know, and you clean all the surfaces. Some of these scenarios like the catch the culture, the no seat, no problem, remote run rampant, those might be more for uh, places that are looking for density solutions that are trying, mm -hmm. right? Or would, do you see that in a different exactly. way? Exactly. So yeah, if we took one step back, so if we went to the passes prologue one briefly, just to describe what that would amount to. in April, May timeframe, there were some conversations and some organizations were considering putting up either high partitions everywhere to provide people with a sense of privacy and control, or quite frankly, a return to the workplaces that, you know, of yesteryear, yeah. uh, with, you know, four walls and a door for everyone. You know, while that sounded appealing at the time because it sounded safe, the reality is that those solutions are extremely expensive. And so, you know, no one's, no one's going to foot the bill to over-invest in a workplace solution that, quite frankly, is outdated. So the past is prologue one to your earlier comment around, oh, you know, some of these shift going forward or would we <laughs> eliminate a few? I think that the past is prologue one is essentially stage setting for the remaining four. I mentioned sanitation and safety is there will be lingering effects to that. But your, I think your question was, well, what about the, the remaining three? You know, if we were to look at, for example, no seat, no problem, in workplace strategy and design, there's a concept called activity-based work, as opposed to assigned desking. And those two things exist kind of in contrast to one another. So activity-based work is, uh, is developing and designing environments that match the activities and behaviors of occupants and provide spaces for those activities to occur. But those spaces are not allocated or assigned to individuals. And so those spaces promote you as an employee to take advantage of essentially the entire office. So no seat, no problem essentially is on the spectrum of regressive to progressive. I would argue it's actually middle ground because a lot of organizations right now, prior to the pandemic and quite frankly, in the midst of the pandemic are still considering activity-based work as a pretty appealing workplace design solution. The, the premise here though, is that to make this shift, and it is a shift, you have to let go of past thinking, let go of the notion that a desk is yours or an office is yours or some square footage on the floor plate belongs to you and rather the entire office is available to you to use. And I would imagine, and I think a lot of our, our clients would agree, especially based on the conversations that we've had, that coming out of this period of time as people have worked remotely and have tried new things and or frankly, I've taken advantage of working at their homes <laughs> in potentially a similar way to the way they might work in the office, in your home environment, right? You might work in bedroom uh, for you know the morning. You might go downstairs for the afternoon. You might go outside to take a call. So uh, you know, in my personal experience, I'm seeing people in different parts of their home environments. I imagine that some of those behaviors will port back to the workplace. People will be a little bit more mobile. No, see, no problem. To me, feels almost like middle ground. Interesting. Like you said earlier. The article itself is a couple of months old, mm -hmm. and it's been circulating a little bit. We've had some conversations around the five futures with some clients. What have you learned through that experience of discussing these topics mm -hmm. as opposed to just sending them out in the world and seeing what they are? We've actually had some traction with developing this. What, what have you learned from that? We've learned a lot, and we've learned it in three ways. So the first, you know, continued conversations with clients specifically about the thinking that we've kind of developed and put out into the world and 
quite frankly, ask feedback on. We put these five features out, you know, a couple of months ago. People have had time to consider them and poke holes in them, which has been productive. Also, I've been able to reflect on my personal experience and the personal experiences of the folks that I work with. Um, so the longer this period of time goes on, the more comfortable or uncomfortable we're getting in yeah. you know, the, the sustained present. So that also is informing our thinking, I believe. And the third thing is lots of organizations have taken the step of surveying their workforce, asking them if they want to return to work. And I think what we're seeing from organizations that have done so is there is a distribution of responses. There is a not insignificant percentage of folks, call it 20%, who say, I never want to come back. I do not need to be in the office. I've proven that this works for me. And we could parse all day long the why behind that. Is it because of concerns for safety? Is it because they feel that their home office provides them everything they need? Is it because, hey, the commute's long and this is working better for me? Is it because as in one organization, there was an individual who uprooted themselves from North Carolina and moved to Nashville because <laughs> they said, hey, if I'm going to be working remotely, I want to be closer to family. So there is you know, a portion of the workforce that as a result of these surveys has expressed a quite frankly, a disinterest in coming back to the office. There's also a portion of the workforce that is very, very hungry to get back. You know, those are the folks, quite frankly, that I think are are missing the social aspect of work. And so there is a pretty large percentage of the population called another 20%. At the other end of the spectrum, it's like, hey, this is not working for us. I am extremely busy, but I don't feel productive, or I don't feel connected to my team, or quite frankly, I miss working alongside my peers. Sure. That is desirous to return in some way, shape, or form. And then there's this middle ground, right? So the remaining call at 60%, I think what we're seeing is- Don't a make me do the math on that because I will more, <laughs> more, Yeah, so a desire for, for more flexibility with respect to when they come to the office. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, trust me to get my, my work done. Trust me to come into the office when, quite frankly, I need to take advantage of the office as a tool um, or the workplace as a tool, but also trust me to- isolated home when that works for me, either because, you know, it works for my family schedule or maybe more to the point, because I have found that my home office can be a great place to get stuff done independently of others. I think that middle ground is pretty interesting. And I think what we're going to see is potentially a shift toward the fourth of the five features that we've outlined, which is catch the culture. So you asked, you know, what have we learned so far? Most of my conversations are around the role of the office entirely and reconsidering that. And there is an appetite amongst clients to explore the idea that the workplace is a hub. It embodies a social enterprise, which is a company, and it has a role and a place, maybe not in the way we once considered it. And so those amenities in the the office, and I'd make the case that even a conference room is an amenity, are lacking today as we sit on an endless stream of Zoom and, you know, FaceTime calls. And so a lot of the organizations that I've been talking to over the course of the last um, couple of months are really thinking about a return to work and a return to workplaces. Can the office be a hub for on-site work? Can it be a place where people come together, connect with each other, potentially have a weekly meeting or a monthly meeting with team members, get aligned in terms of what needs to be accomplished, make sure everyone's on the same page and well-informed, and then potentially break apart? and go perform individual tasks and then come back together, much in the same way, obviously, teaming happens organically. If I were to be critical of where the majority of offices have landed over the course of the last 15 years or so, most of the conversations that I have with end users are really stuck in 
this middle ground between the need for focus and the need for collaboration and striking the right balance there. And I think what we found is the environments that we've designed don't really provide great places for individual focus work to occur. Mm. And that work occurs pretty well when you're away from others. And the home office might be the right solution as opposed to this kind of middle ground hybrid solution where, <laughs> hey, I can you know put my headphones on or I can duck away to a private cubicle and get work done for two hours at a time. So a couple of things that you said during that made me think that people have been examining what's the purpose of the workplace for a while. And one of those is it needs to be a tool to help you do your job more you know efficiently and effectively and be a good experience. You know, our three E's that we sell as consultants, you know, because if it's an alliteration, you can charge more for it. Or, and if it <laughs> rhymes, forget about it. No, the concept, it could be two things. And one I found interesting, I just found out this week, two of our co-workers were going to go and meet in the office so they could storyboard out a really large deliverable that's going to be coming because they found it difficult to do via text. So they're like, we're going to come in, we're going to take the big conference room, we're going to put everything up on the wall. But I also know other coworkers that have actually gone into work because they have children mm -hmm. and they had something they needed to focus on. How do you serve both of those functions when more of a population comes back? It's about that being an effective tool. Well, and the big question ultimately, right, is how productive are we being during this period of time? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you were to look at the statistics, I know there were reports that came out in the May timeframe, just looking at traffic essentially on you know, corporate computers. And folks were basically trading commute time for home office work time. <laughs> um, so, the, you know, the number of hours that Americans uh, work were going up. So, you know, we weren't getting more of our personal lives back. In fact, we were <laughs> trading that time for, for more time at our at our desks. I mean, I will say from my personal experience, again, back to, you know, talking with clients, surveying population and then just personal experience, I've found myself in more large group meetings on Zoom or, you know, on Microsoft Teams than would have happened historically because we struggle to get on the same page when we're away from each other, right? A, a quick conversation or a quick glance or a quick shout, you know, becomes a, a 30 minute meeting <laughs> because those are the increments of time that we tend to schedule. And so I have found myself being very active. But the question becomes, you know, is that activity translating to actual productivity, actual, you know, good solutions for myself personally, and then also obviously for the organization. And so, you know, for our client's perspective, I think what they're trying to figure out, is this a productive way for us to work or not? Set against, quite frankly, the expense that you incur with corporate real estate, which is traditionally the second most expensive cost driver on the books. If we were to evaluate the maybe the fifth <laughs> of the five features that we laid out, this idea of remote run rampant, there are some organizations. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a company in Cincinnati, Ohio called Paycor. Um, Paycor is an HR software company. Paycor owns a building and also leases a building in Cincinnati, Ohio. And they've decided to embrace what is called virtual first. Now, the most newsworthy company that's done this is Twitter. So Twitter, if you remember about a month ago, said, hey, we're not going to have people back. We're not going to encourage them to come back. And quite frankly, they'll probably work remotely indefinitely. So Paycor is another example of this kind of virtual first mentality. And the idea here is, you know, you don't need to come to the office. This is working for us. The office is expensive. Uh, the office has to be maintained. The office is not as effective as a tool. And quite frankly, at some organizations, engagement and sentiment is up <laughs> as a result of working from home. And so there's a, a weird trade-off that companies are, are making. But the fifth potential future is the idea that, look, 
some people have proven that this is working for them, especially people that work a lot independently. And they've proven that they don't necessarily need to be in a place together working alone. And so there is some portion of the population that probably won't ever return either from cost-saving perspective or because, quite frankly, their, their job is one that can be done independently. I think that even if it's an insignificant percentage, let's say that it's you know 5%, 10% of the workforce, will have pretty dramatic ramifications for certainly corporate real estate. Because imagine pulling 5 to 10% of the workforce out of the pool of folks that need offices and think about the ripple effect that will have in terms of demand for office space and then for right. you know, projects that need to be designed in those footprints. I mean, it's, it's pretty substantial. If you could go back and change it, now that you've had time to vet this and explore these, you know, would you have fewer futures or would you change any of the titles? Would you add anything? I think we've identified that there are probably realistically are three futures <laughs> and then potentially one scenario that it will continue <laughs> to inform the way that workplaces are designed for the foreseeable future. So, you know, the three that I think are, are most appealing to our clients and reflect what we've learned over the course of the last couple of months working remotely are no seat, no problem. Again, most organizations were considering this in some way, shape, or form prior to the pandemic. The second is this catch the culture idea. Most of my very, very productive conversations with clients have been around that one because that's the one that's most appealing. That's the one that people can understand, I think, pretty easily. And that's, quite frankly, the thing that's missing. <laughs> so if we were to do a you know, needs-based analysis of where we're at today with respect to work, places to come together. And you mentioned it even with your example of two coworkers trying to get together to storyboard out a significant deliverable. Tools and technology are advancing every single day, but we still don't have a good substitute for, you know, a wink and smile and a nudge. I mean, those things just can't be communicated as effectively through the computer. And then the third is remote run rampant. And I think the the reality is that some portion of the workforce will not return to the same behavioral patterns that they left. So some portion of the workforce will be indefinitely remote, <laughs> potentially forever. We'll find right. some jobs that, um, quite frankly, don't require a dedicated seat in the office. And similar to no seat, no problem, there was a portion of the work, American workforce, right, that was working remotely prior to this period of time. I think that number is going to increase as a percentage of total. And then the question becomes, you know, how do those folks interface and interact with the, the people that return in some way? For example, I mean, the majority of our meetings have shifted to this Teams environment or Zoom environment or BlueJeans environment or whatever uh, <laughs> video conferencing software du jour you're using, right? And the reality is most of our meetings were not occurring with significant video presence prior. So that will be a consideration for the future office too. How do you accommodate folks that are interacting with people who are not there, not present, using the tools that they've learned over the course of this period of time? The question that I wanted to hold back to see if you would go there or not, remote run rampant, like the word rampant implies a raging wildfire out of control. You know, is there ever a point where it's like remote refined or uh, <laughs> remote reframed if we're sticking mm. with the, the, oh, the, the alliteration is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> I like remote refined. Yeah. Now, maybe a little alarmist in terms of its its verbiage. Yeah, I'll, I'll grant yeah, you. Yeah, but I think I think that was the fear, though, is that a lot of clients that we've known that have resisted that urge to tempt fate with more remote work thought that they wouldn't be able to contain it, that it would be a wildfire out of control, and they're finding through this, you know, forced social experiment that they have ways they can put guardrails around it, and you know, they're learning quickly how to control the fire. 
Okay, so my final question is, so what? What do we do with all this information? Bring us home. Let's land this plane, right? <laughs> that's right, that's right. So I think the big so what is, for the first time in a long time, the attention of executives is on corporate real estate in a pretty substantial way. You know, historically, it's either large projects or downturns in the economy that shift focus to corporate real estate. So a large project, right, we're going to build something, it's going to be expensive, it's going to be here for a long time, we got to make sure we get it right. Or a downturn in the economy, hey, we got to figure out how to eliminate cost. This is potentially the biggest target because we don't want to get rid of our, our people. The interesting thing about this period of time, the global pandemic, is that a lot of organizations have maintained operations and maintained them you know, through a period of time where vast majority of the workforce was, was not making use of corporate real estate. And also really considering where, how, when, and with whom work happens. So for the first time, I'd say in a long time, and maybe for the first time ever, the focus has shifted from corporate real estate as you know a cost driver to workplace strategy, finally and firstly, as a real consideration for trying to understand how people can be most productive, can be most efficient, effective, and to your point, have a great experience at work. You know, there's been a lot of talk in industry for quite some time about the role of workplace strategy, but it's found its way into front and center in the hearts and minds of, of quite frankly, a different class of folks. I was on a call just last week with the chief people officer for a pretty large investment company who was grappling with many of the questions that we've been grappling with for a long time for the first time. The role of workplaces is now squarely in the crosshairs in a way that I don't think it has been historically. I think historically we've looked at it in terms of how many people can we get into this space and you know what are the amenities that we're going to provide for them. And I say provide for them because historically workplace strategy and design has really been a, and you know where my heart is, it's always in economics. It has always been a supply side question. What are we going to provide for people? I think because people have taken stock of the way they work for the first time in a really significant way, it's also become a demand side question. What does the workspace provide for me? What do I need to get out of the workplace environment? And I think that will stoke a pretty significant shift in the way that we consider the design of space. When people return, they will evaluate the spaces they return to and with, with new eyes. Um, and what that means is, quite frankly, an opportunity to reshape the workplace because there were deficiencies with their existing workplace. You know, right. <laughs> the only time the workplace really got any attention was every once in a while when there would be an article in, you know, Harvard <laughs> Business Review or the you know, New York Times about how terrible the open office blanket terminology is. And, and right. for the first time, I think we've, we've really taken stock of the way we work. Um, and I think that will, will stick and will force us as professionals to reconsider the spaces that we design and provide for the people who work there. That's my hope. That's my optimistic hope. That's great. Brought it right back to reevaluating the purpose of that space and what people's needs are. I think that's where we've always been, designed for people, right? What are exactly. people's needs and how can the space provide them? And okay. if it doesn't, do they need to be there? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all, all very valid questions. Fantastic. Well, Drew, thank you for joining. Brian, thanks for having me on today. It's been a pleasure as always. 
That's great. Thank you. And thank you for joining Trends and Tensions presented by BHTP for this episode, The Five Futures, which may soon be The Three Futures, with Drew Susco, client leader and architect with BHTP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I'm Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.